Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. This week's episode is an audio version of my latest blog for Bloomberg NEF, entitled After Ukraine, The Great Clean Energy Acceleration. These are extremely difficult times in Europe and around the world. Our thoughts are with all of the victims of Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. However, as you'll hear, I believe there's a good chance that the combination of Europe being forced to cut its dependence on Russian gas the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and the global momentum behind climate action will herald the beginning of an epic dash for clean energy through to the end of this decade. Let's get started. 20 years ago, sustainability was the only real driver of the transition to clean energy. Around 10 years ago, there was a major acceleration when it became clear that wind, solar and batteries were going to become really cheap. Economics also started to drive the clean energy transition. I believe this hellish year is going to lead to another similar acceleration as it becomes clear that clean energy, and not fossil fuels, holds the key to energy security. We have of course known for centuries that coal, oil and gas have driven vast improvements in standard of living, but they have also caused crisis after crisis, war after war, and scandal after scandal. We have also known for decades now that we needed to transition to clean energy from a climate perspective, but that only got us so far. What's different about this crisis is that instead of having no choice but to double down on securing fossil fuel supplies, For the first time, we can double down on proven, safe and scalable clean solutions. What was once disparagingly called alternative energy really does now present an alternative. From now on, the three elements of the energy trilemma, security, affordability and sustainability, are all going to be pushing in the same direction. We face some very difficult years, there is no question. But as we get through them, things are going to start moving extremely fast. The great energy price spike of 2022 is going to give way to the great clean energy acceleration. In the US, just when everyone had given up hope of a federal climate change package, the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, popped up and sailed through Congress in a matter of weeks. There has been plenty of excellent analysis of it by others, including, of course, by Bloomberg NEF. I'm going to focus here, therefore, mainly on Europe and the consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But before I do so, allow me to make one note, that it was the great energy price spike of 2022 that put the I in the IRA and made the politics work, though I reserve judgment on whether the result actually does reduce inflation. Now, no one knows how the war will end. Ukraine may make further breakthroughs. Russia may use its mobilisation of conscripts to freeze the status quo by force of numbers, as the Soviet Union did in Eastern Europe after World War II. 
In any case, there seems little prospect of an end to the war, swift or decisive enough for sanctions on Russia to be lifted within five or even ten years. If there is to be a silver lining to this ghastly war, therefore, it will be that it draws a permanent line under Europe's long-standing over-dependence on Russian fossil fuels. There will still be some level of Russian energy imports into Europe, allowed under humanitarian or other exceptions, seeping out via the grey market, perhaps even to fund reparations to Ukraine for damages inflicted, but they are likely to remain modest compared to the dependency of recent years. That's not to say that Russian commodities won't find their way into the global market. China, India and countries across Asia and Africa will remain willing buyers. Iran and Turkey will be willing intermediaries and transport corridors. Diverting Russian coal and solid commodities to new markets will not even require too much in the way of new infrastructure. Most are transported by rail and sea already. Russia's real challenge lies in finding new markets for its gas. In 2021, Russia exported 155 billion cubic metres of gas to Europe and only 33 billion cubic metres to Asia. By diverting all of its LNG to Asia and ramping up the capacity of existing pipelines, Russia could relatively quickly increase Asian gas sales to around 80 billion cubic metres, according to analysis by the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. By 2030, with investment in further projects, the figure could perhaps reach 120 billion cubic metres. Beyond that, while projects under discussion could take the figure to 200 billion cubic metres, that is a much more distant and less likely prospect. Western countries will, of course, do their best to impede this pivot to the east. They will make sure Russia struggles to source advanced control systems based on Western microprocessors, as well as specialist equipment like submersible LNG pumps and expertise. But China has far too much to gain and far too much technology to offer in return for Western sanctions to do more than delay rather than prevent. As this pivot plays out, the overall global supply and demand balance for energy will be restored. In the end, Russia might pump a bit less, but other countries will pump a bit more. Russian resources will sell to the east and south at something of a discount, freeing up other producers to sell to the west at something of a premium. Europe will import less via gas pipeline and more via LNG, at a higher price, but not catastrophically so once facilities are built. So, unless Russia's war on Ukraine goes significantly non-linear, we should expect energy and commodity prices to come back down in the medium and longer term. European economies will eventually return to growth and a new normal will emerge. But, and this is crucial, with Europe's addiction to cheap Russian fossil fuels broken forever. Back in 1969, when the German government was looking to build its first pipeline from the then Soviet Union, officials from the German Federal Economics Ministry assured NATO that the gas that would flow would not meet more than 10% of Germany's needs. But by 2014, the year Russia annexed Crimea, Russia supplied 
around a third of Germany's energy needs. By 2021, it was 35% of Germany's oil, 45% of its coal, and an absolutely shocking 55% of the country's gas. Germany's great and good simply assumed that Russia, despite repeated military incursions against its neighbours and troublemaking around the world, would remain a reliable energy supplier. After the invasion, former German finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble spoke for them all with humility and succinctness. I was wrong, he said. We were all wrong. Europe's overdependence on Russian energy had been acknowledged for years in the corridors of Brussels, but no action was ever taken. Following the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the European Council asked the European Commission for a plan to diversify the bloc's energy sources. Eight years later, in 2022, despite continuous conflict interrupted by no fewer than 29 failed ceasefires, EU countries were more dependent on Russian oil, gas and coal than ever. Even after the invasion began, European leaders were slow to react. Legislators in Brussels were slogging through the process of increasing the bloc's emission reduction ambitions from 40% to 55% by 2030, that's relative to 1990 levels. And initially, they presented this as sufficient response to the crisis. Commission Executive Vice President Franz Timmermans stated in March that his top priority was to ensure the Green Deal and Fit for 55 packages did not, in inverted commas, go on the back burner. It was not until the end of May that the EU agreed a year-end embargo on Russian coal and seaborne oil, and even then Russian gas was given a stay of execution. It was only to be reduced by two-thirds by the end of this year, with elimination targeted, in inverted commas, well before 2030. And that's all. By the end of the summer, however, despite gas export volumes down 80%, it became clear that Russia was still earning as much from fossil fuel exports as it had been before the invasion. President Putin seemed to realise well before EU leaders that Europe would be hit harder by a gas shutdown than Russia, and it was he who decided to turn off the taps. Now Europe is facing its first winter in 50 years without Russian energy supplies. The final six months of Russian gas were at least used to nearly fill the continent's storage tanks. Mild weather this winter might obviate the need for rolling power outages, but a harsh winter could easily overwhelm supplies with unpredictable consequences. It was only over the summer that Europe's leaders appeared to wake up to the fact that the great energy price spike could be catastrophic, not just for their citizens' finances, but for their own political careers. Their reflexive response was, as it had been during the great financial crisis and the pandemic, to reach for the taxpayers' checkbooks. Costs are being transferred from individuals and businesses to the state, either explicitly via direct utility bill support and government-funded energy price caps, or implicitly via unfunded price caps, followed by bailouts or outright nationalisation of energy companies, Uniper and the gas importers in Germany, EDF in France, Bulb and 30 other utilities in the UK, and so on. The sums are quite eye-watering. 
According to Brussels-based think tank Bruegel, by the middle of September, European governments had committed 500 billion euros, that's also around 500 billion dollars, to keeping the lights on. And this may be just a start. Norway's energy major Equinor has warned that European energy market participants might need as much as $1.5 trillion in liquidity guarantees if they're to continue to operate. Clearly, this can only go on for so long before the bond market's exact punishment. A rerun of the European financial crisis of 2011 cannot be ruled out. Other than spending public money, many of our leaders spent the early months of the crisis arguing for whatever energy technology they had always favoured, be that renewables, heat pumps, electric vehicles, hydrogen, fracking or nuclear power. Of course, none of these can be deployed fast enough to make much of a difference over the next two critical winters. At a recent gathering of leading energy figures I attended in London, the former head of one of the UK's security agencies asked for his thoughts on energy security in the light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, stood up, cleared his throat and launched into a paean of praise for small modular reactors. I'm as much of a nuclear fan as any sensible person, but we must be realistic. Not a single SMR will be operating much before 2030. There is no plausible scenario in which SMRs supply 1% of global electricity before 2040. And even then, we have no idea where the fuel will come from or what the resulting power is likely to cost. One of the first moves by the new UK administration under Liz Truss was to lift the ban on fracking. Once again, I'm a fan of fracking, as long as it's done right and appropriately regulated. But the idea that fracking in the UK will produce enough natural gas to move European gas prices anytime soon is absurd. The industry's own trade body, UK Onshore Oil and Gas, estimates that fracking could cover 5% of the UK's needs in five years. And even if you believe that, that is less than 1% of current European gas demand. And it's not just the UK where fantasy energy politics grab the headlines. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been promising German industry a big boom in hydrogen, the so-called gas of the future, which will enable natural gas to be replaced for industry, heating and transport. In August, he was in Canada, signing an agreement with Prime Minister Trudeau to start imports by 2025 and ramp up by 2030, apparently completely unaware of the physics of hydrogen, which would drive such eye-watering costs that no more than homeopathic quantities of liquid hydrogen will ever travel by ship. There is, in fact, only a limited number of things that could actually help the European energy balance over the coming two winters to compensate for the loss of Russian gas. Energy efficiency, sourcing more gas from non-Russian sources, keeping existing nuclear plants online and bringing back those that are offline, burning more coal, and, as a last resort, demand reduction, rolling power cuts, gas rationing, and the like. That's it. The rest, when it comes to helping Ukraine, is noise. No fewer than 25 floating storage and regasification units, so-called FSRUs, which enable LNG to be injected into the European system, are in various stages of planning in Europe, 
with the first ones due to arrive this winter. Germany alone has decided on locations for no fewer than five, though supply negotiations are tricky. LNG suppliers are angling for long-term contracts, while buyers are angling to avoid long-term contracts as they interfere with long-term climate plans. On nuclear, public support for retaining existing plants is surging around the world. Belgium has decided to keep open its remaining plants until 2035. California has given Diablo Canyon a reprieve beyond its 2025 planned closure. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has firmly backed the reopening of more of his country's plants, which were shuttered since Fukushima. And South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol, who took office in May, has vowed to reverse the former administration's policy of phasing out nuclear power. The German administration, however, has only conceded the need to keep two of its last three plants operational, but only to provide what it calls an emergency reserve. It's hard to see what would constitute an emergency if this winter's supply squeeze does not qualify. French engineers, meanwhile, are working round the clock to bring back online as many as possible of the 32 plants out of a total of 56 that are currently offline for routine maintenance or because of corrosion. As for energy efficiency, in June 2020, I wrote a piece for Bloomberg NEF entitled Energy Efficiency Key to COVID Recovery, making the case that investment in efficiency should lie at the heart of the post-pandemic stimulus packages. Somewhere in a parallel universe, our leaders listened and saved us all a few tens of billions of pounds or euros or dollars this winter. In any case, by now, most European countries have announced urgent energy efficiency programmes. Spanish offices, for instance, may not be cooled above 27 degrees centigrade or heated above 19 degrees centigrade. Germany is introducing mandatory checks on the efficiency of heating systems, which are often incorrectly set, even in Germany. Only the UK is hanging back. Lagging on lagging, as you might say. As for burning more coal, yes, we are seeing a spike in global emissions. Not only is Europe burning more to replace Russian gas, but China is trying to prop up its economy in the face of a devastating real estate crash and a potential recession driven by its zero-Covid policies. It's spending 6.8 trillion yuan, about $1 trillion, on its usual tools, an infrastructure-based stimulus. Europe's emergency use of coal and China's last gasp infrastructure stimulus are both, however, short-term phenomena. We will soon be back to the emissions plateau on which we have been since around a decade. And after that, we should expect the great clean energy acceleration to kick in. The EU now has in place a range of frameworks designed to drive investment in clean energy and hydrogen. It has the Green Deal, Fit for 55, the Hydrogen Strategy and Repower EU, which the Atlantic Council calculates will drive spending through 2025 equal to around 1.4% of GDP. Member countries are translating these into local policies. Germany's Chancellor may be talking up hydrogen, but his ministers are beavering away 
demolishing planning barriers to renewable energy projects and accelerating the electrification of heat and transport. No new natural gas boilers may be installed after 2024. Heat pump installations across 21 of the 27 EU member states have doubled over the last four years and are now growing by 34% per year. Plug-in vehicles account for around 20% of new car registrations in the EU, up from less than 5% three years ago. Europe is not just going cold turkey on Russian energy for a couple of years, it is looking to go clean for good. In the UK, the new administration has kicked off a review of the cost-effectiveness of current plans to get to net zero, but it remains committed to the 2050 target. Whatever the review finds, and despite the rhetoric of some of its allies, the proportion of renewable power is set to soar. The goal of the previous administration was to reach 50 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030, against a current figure of just 12.7 gigawatts. 12 gigawatts of contracts for difference for new offshore wind projects have already been awarded earlier this year, at a fixed price some three times lower than the output of the Hinkley Sea nuclear power station currently being built, and, as then Prime Minister Boris Johnson cheerfully pointed out, nine times lower than the current price of power from natural gas. Then there's X-Links, the high-voltage DC cable designed to import 3.6 gigawatts of dispatchable renewables for Morocco by 2030 at a price likely to be around half that of the 24 gigawatts of nuclear plants currently planned for 2050. We've already touched on the US, where the 369 billion or more impact of the Inflation Reduction Act comes on top of the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which contained around 140 billion for energy innovation, public transport and the electrical grid, and the 2020 Energy Act. The Atlantic Council estimated that the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act would double US climate spending through 2025 from 0.6% of GDP to 1.25%, in other words, nearly the levels being spent in Europe. The most interesting aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act, however, might be the signal that it sends that the US intends to lead the world in climate-related technologies, laying down the gauntlet to both Europe and Asia. Despite the prospects of benefiting somewhat from increased flows of Russian fossil fuels, as we've seen, Asia looks set to take up the challenge. China's nationally determined contribution, that's the pledge it made at the Glasgow COP26 summit to reach peak emissions before 2030, hinged on doubling wind and solar power to 1.2 terawatts, increasing the proportion of EV sales to 40%, and adding 20 gigawatts of new nuclear power by 2025. In Japan, in May, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida launched the country's plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 46% by 2030, over the figure for 1990, as part of its pledge to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. His plan requires investment this decade of 150 trillion yen, that's a trillion dollars, of which the government is planning to raise 20 trillion yen, or 140 billion dollars, in the form of sovereign green transition bonds. India 
has committed to reaching 175 gigawatts of renewable capacity by the end of 2022. It looks like missing this target by 20% or more, but it recently increased its 2030 goal to 450 gigawatts, a figure that it could easily surpass. If all this is not enough to persuade you that we're on the verge of a great clean energy acceleration, contemplate this, courtesy of Jenny Chase and the Bloomberg NEF solar team. Global solar installations are expected to grow to 245 gigawatts this year, up 38% on last year. But by 2025, existing and planned solar silicon refining capacity would be sufficient to deliver no less than 940 gigawatts of new photovoltaic capacity annually. That's nearly four times the current installation rate, and in fact as much per year as has been installed over the entirety of the last two decades. Now, the corresponding cell, panel and installation capacity may not yet exist, but the supply chain for a solar singularity is on its way. In summary, we are in the middle of tough times, particularly in Europe, and our thoughts must primarily be with the brave people of Ukraine. However, we can take solace in the thought that the great energy price spike of 2022 should, in due course, give way to the great clean energy acceleration. To paraphrase British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey on the eve of the First World War in 1914, the gas taps are going off all over Europe. We shall not see them opened again in our lifetime. President Putin may be starting to lose his war of aggression on Ukraine. More importantly, perhaps in the long term, he may have set in motion forces that will accelerate the eventual redundancy of the fossil fuel reserves on which his imperial ambitions were built. One can but hope. So thank you for listening. This was an audio version of my recent piece for Bloomberg NEF. My thanks, as always, to Bloomberg for allowing me to record these audio blog episodes for you, my Cleaning Up audience. Next week on Cleaning Up, my guest is Yanis Varoufakis, academic economist and politician. He's a member of Greek Parliament, founder and secretary-general of Mera 25, a leftist political party and famously served as Minister of Finance for Greece in 2015, and he subsequently wrote a book about the experience called Adults in the Room, which was about how the EU stymied his attempts to renegotiate Greece's debts in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Please join me at this time next week for a conversation with Yanis Varoufakis. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.